hush came over the crowd. <laughs> Good evening and welcome. Um, my name is Charles Stang. I'm the director here at the Center for the Study of World Religions. If this is your first time, please know that you're welcome. And if you're interested in the programming we're doing here, you can sign up uh, on our website for notices of that. I'm very pleased and very proud to welcome Anne Waldman to the Center to help us inaugurate our new series on poetry, philosophy, and religion. First, let me take care of a few mundane matters, though. <coughs> please, please silence your phones. <laughs> or better, just turn them off. Um, it's bad enough when a lecture is interrupted by a phone uh, call. It's so much worse when it's a poem. So don't be that person. <laughs> Take the time now to ensure that your phone is silenced. If there's time at the end of Anne's lecture and reading, she will take questions. <coughs> but you have to forgive me because I will have to whisk Anne away at a certain point, perhaps mid-sentence, mid-conversation, so that we can host her and bring her to dinner. So if I interrupt a conversation, forgive me ahead of time. And if you're craving more time with Anne, she will be holding a seminar tomorrow here at the center in this very room from 11 to 1 p.m. Uh, and that is an open seminar. You don't need to prepare for it. It's open to all. This year marks the start of a new four-year series here at the center on the theme of poetry, philosophy, and religion. The series aims to explore the porous boundaries between these three modes of inquiry and utterance which have had a tense but pro productive relationship from antiquity until today. We've decided to explore this contested space first and foremost from the perspective of poets, living poets. The life and work of Anne Waldman is a testimony to the tense and productive relationship between poetry, philosophy, and religion. I would like now to welcome my colleague, Ariella Ruth Goldberg, to the podium to give Anne a proper introduction. In addition to serving as the center's events coordinator, Ariella Ruth is herself a poet, very much alive. <laughs> she has been absolutely instrumental in our launching this new series, and she has a longstanding relationship with Naropa University and with our esteemed guest. Ariel Ruth, I give you the floor. Thank you. Sa thanks so much for being here. Being the event coordinator, seeing a full room is um, thrilling. So, um, yep, my name is Ariella Ruth Goldberg. I'm the events coordinator here at the Center for the Study of World Religions. My role is almost always behind the scenes. I usually hang out in that back area during <laughs> events. Um, but working, and I'm usually working on all the details and moving parts that go into bringing the Center's vast programming to life. But I'm also a poet, as Charles Stang said, and a poet who is ecstatic to find myself in a community here that deeply values poetry. And I'm honored to introduce Anne Waldman tonight. Anne Waldman is a poet, teacher, performer, and cultural activist who has been a student of Tibetan Buddhism since 1970. 
She has taught poetics and performed her texts all over the world and has been an active collaborator with many other artists, including composer and vocalist Meredith Monk and choreographer Douglas Dunn, among others. She is part of the Fast Speaking Music Collective and Recording Label and an active member of the Outrider Experimental Poetry Community, which bridges the spaces between art, spirituality, and social justice, a poetics that we need now more than ever. Deemed a countercultural giant by Publishers Weekly, she traveled with Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review, was arrested with Allen Ginsberg and Daniel Ellsberg at Rocky Flats, and participated in protests at the Chicago 7 trial. Waldman was one of the founders and directors of the Poetry Project at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery in New York City, and went on to co-found the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa University with Allen Ginsberg in 1974. She's continued to work at Naropa, the first Buddhist-inspired university in the United States, as a distinguished professor of poetics and is artistic director of its celebrated summer writing program. Allen Ginsberg referred to Waldman as his spiritual wife in their long relationship as co-directors and companion poets. A dedicated writer, Waldman has created radical new hybrid forms for the long poem, both serial and narrative, in such books as Structure of the World Compared to a Bubble, Manatee Humanity, and Murmur, I believe which are all being sold in the lobby tonight, and is the author of the magnum opus, The Eovis Trilogy, Colors and the Mechanism of Concealment, which won the Penn Center 2012 Award for Poetry, one of many awards she has received during her prolific career. Her new book of poems, Trickster Feminism, a book of protest, is forthcoming this year. For me, one of the most profound, intense, enlightening, challenging, and spiritual adventures of my life was the six years I spent at Naropa. I was an MFA writing and poetics student in the Jack Kerouac School where I studied with Anne and later worked on the staff for several years before finding myself, magically, here at the CSWR. I feel forever grounded in the lineage of Buddhist thinkers and experimental poets that Anne started there in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, which single-handedly propelled me here. Having the opportunity through Charles Stang's poetry, philosophy, and religion programming thread to invite Anne here to speak on Buddhism and poetry feels like the bridging of two complementary landscapes. For me, this is not only a meeting of my two worlds, but of two worlds that seem to do similar cultural work that focus not only on academics, but also on philosophy, practice, and deep connection. Two worlds that speak and cultivate mirrored utterances. These two places, as I find myself saying so often, exist on such a similar plane that it has been almost impossible for me not to notice. To my knowledge, these two worlds are meeting together tonight in this way for the first time with the kind of spark and combustion that this encounter so desires. In lieu of attempting to describe Anne's poetry, I pulled an assortment of lines from her writing that I hope can capture the essence of her work. Poems standing in for poets. On the page, in the air, on the street. Water that moves mountains. I needed a luminous detail. Mind on fire. How are you contemporary with your time? Wave of woman future, I ride it. Who carries it forward? She wants to be weaving. 
I'm the woman who dreams. I'm the artist inside her magic house. And now, survival, whatever it takes. Please welcome Ann Waldman. Thank you so much, Ariella, Ruth. Thank you, Professor Stang. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Wonderful to see so many people here. And it's a great honor to be here at this place, which I'm learning more and more about. A very special place. And thank you. So you're just going to see some of these slides kind of roll through a bit. Um, some things are very obvious coming from the Wheel of Life, the Six Realms, Tara, Vajra Yogini, Milarepa, uh, Dagya Rinpoche, Kensei Rinpoche, Suzuki Roshi, Dalai Lama, Kalu Rinpoche, Daidalori, Chogyam Trungpa and Poets, Naropa, Thoreau, Emerson, <laughs> Allen Ginsberg, Philip Whalen, Gary Snyder, Joanne Kiger, Diane De Prima, Jack Kerouac, John Cage, Structure of the World Compared to a Bubble Cover, Beats at Naropa Cover. Me with some flags and recently in Kathmandu, more Tibet, temple relief, Tibet, 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 orange cloth for flags and mountains, Tibet, gold statue, Tibet, dancers, Tibet, 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 etc. Tapestry Buddha, Robert Thurman, Tara, 21 Taras, Hiroshima, the Philadelphia riots of 64, Young Trungpa, Trungpa and Allen, Burroughs and Trungpa, Anne and Allen and Diane, De Prima, Java Stupa, Java Stupa, Java Stupa, Tibetan Pragna Paramita Sutra, Japanese Pragna Paramita Sutra, Shambhala Center, Shambhala Center, and Amanity. So, thank you. I mean, and they're not hooked in, they're resonant with things I'm trying to cover. So I'm going to jump right in and I'll intersperse occasionally with some poems that seem relevant to the text I've created for tonight and then also I'll read a few things at the end and we'll see how that goes. And if you, uh, start getting bored with this ramble, which is a somewhat of a personal narrative, but also touches on a lot of other uh, voices, you could say, and instances, and uh, times it's somewhat kaleidoscopic, and I might have to jump and move around. And I'm calling it the Dharma Gaze, the text, and it's actually um, 25 gazes, and we'll get to some of them. But I'd like to open with a piece called Chen Rezig Walks Among Us. Chen Rezig is the Tibetan name, as probably some of you know, for Avalokiteshvara, also Kuan Yin, and the name uh, etymologically means one who looks down upon the sound of all beings, the lamentations of beings. So the, the um, Bodhisattva is being called to the suffering world to come down and help. And there's a story of Avalokiteshvara being aided by Buddha Amitabha to create more arms and more hearts and more pores in his body, more eyes to better heads, everything, to help the world uh, more, which we definitely need. So I, we call on Chen Rezik. This is an interesting day in the Buddhist calendar, uh, Friday, and the Chinese calendar. It's the new year, the year of the earth dog. What does that mean? It means we, I think we're going to have to work harder and, um, I don't know, either dig up more bones, bury more bones, stay loyal to our vision. Um, I haven't done all the scrying yet on, on the, the earth dog, what the meaning of that is, but it's Losar in the Tibetan tradition. And up to yesterday, there was, um, so this constant practice of the, um, it's called the Mamo chants, the pacifying, the turmoil of the Mamos, where you're actually driving out these Maras. Mara was the tempter of Buddha. Driving out the Maras that are inside your own 
uh, consciousness that interfere and obscure. And before the new year, it's important to sort of clear the decks, clear the head, clear the mental um, static and the mental, uh, you know, patterns and so on. So you, you work with the mamos, you're banishing to the right and the left. You're, it's a great time of exorcism, samaya. You do this mantra all day long and then you complete it with the hundred um, syllable mantra, Vajrasafa, but I don't, I'm not going to do it here. We're not supposed to do it today as the neutral day. Yesterday was a hellish day and that's also part of it, that it's, we're working up to this time of a dark time where everything's just um, impossible and it, it, it's built up over this year. I'm sure we all feel that. We felt it at our new year. Our, our new year. In any case, um, as we know, the horrific events of yesterday, which was also this Ash Wednesday, which was also Valentine's Day, so this heavy day loaded with a lot of, a lot of things. And just to note that. And um, so I feel better coming to the, the, the stiller day. That's the idea. But so Chenrezig is looking down on the uh, suffering world. Swept away all suffering, gathered it up in a quantum leap, sucked it up till it returned. And when he looked back over his shoulder and saw suffering come back in a great wave, all suffering riding and filling up nooks and crannies and crevices and templates of the world, all suffering, filling neurons, quarks and leptons, troubling minds of fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, all children, lovers, all sentient beings, suffering, toxins of passion, aggression, ignorance, in the middle of the night, strapped in demon mind, nowhere to hide, nowhere when sounding, suffering rises in, and mind splits in a thousand pieces. Chen Rezig wept, and his head split in a thousand pieces. Then mighty red fire Buddha Amitabha leans in and puts the puzzle back together, wires it with tantric thread, adds some extra arms, extra heads, a conglomeration of tendencies, this wisdom body to rid the world of all suffering. More arms and heads take charge. Build it better, a deity to maximize power of bodhicitta to ease all suffering. And now Chenrezig had a thousand arms in all directions of space with numerous accoutrements. And under those arms a thousand hearts better to banish all suffering, suffering of Tibet, of stateless Rohingya, wherever his crystallized land, whatever map of suffering he alights on, keep emptying Europe, USA, empty Israel, Palestine, empty China, Russia, Syria, Japan, Yemen, more wisdom eyes in all the pores of the body. Chen Rezik walks among us, humble prince toward all systems of empire. 
walks among us as all constituent forms. Precious ink, diamond, scepter, skull cup of blood, thigh bone, trumpet, dissolve in mind and lotus at his feet. Rises again through cracks of a concrete city or charnel ground. Round, 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 grounds eternal war. Star flowers shoot at dark of a distant galaxy. Anywhere out of this world, his heart is that big. And Dharma gates are endless. He enters every one of them. Typhoons and famine dissolve. Is it cold out here? When will the planet not roil with dystopia and ghosts of hunger? And we'll relight the butter lamp gone out in panic of the dark age. Banish the syndicates of samsara. Put away your texts of doom. Turn the wheel again in our frail Anthropocene. Chen Rezi walks among us and no identity endures yet. Bodhisattvas are ever active, invisible elves, swirling shamans, shape-shifting wizards every hour, dedicating the merit. No end time here but aspiration to press harder. Don't tarry, don't tarry, don't tarry, keep trying to sweep all soft away all pockets of the multiverse keep vow with mudra with mantra every mala beat a thought for others golden thread of enlightening in every step in all directions of space push push against the darkness push push against the darkness our Cartesian doubt quantum dimensions to worry while Dharma bends in all dimensions simultaneously and extinction is nothing but the extinction of all suffering inside the extinction of self whose form is emptiness to power of compassion. Chen Rezik walks among us, scientists of compassion. Push, push against the darkness. 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 I once watched His Holiness the Dalai Lama in the Rockies, his helicopter like ephemeral dragonfly descend to the great stupa of Dharmakaya. He came towards us, radiant vision of compassion in the shimmering autumnal light. Okay, we'll try to see how many gazes we can get in here. One, Amrit Kundali. Gazing at emptiness, a gaze in critical theory terminology, which may be literary, sociological, anthropological, seems to be deeply conditional and in some cases an entrenched way of seeing the phenomenal world and its constituents. Once in the grip of this gaze, 
one sees the world's trappings, its workings, its subjects most particularly as objects of scrutiny, in some cases disdain. This often refers to situations involving systems of surveillance and power dynamics. It is more of self a self-regulating relationship than a given from a particular problematic stance, but when studied and deconstructed, may be a way of empowering the victim. So the idea is to analyze this relationship of power and break the gaze and free the object, the recipient or recipients. We have reference to the imperial gaze described in post-colonial theory, the male gaze, which originated with Laura Mulvey's book, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, 1975, seeing women from a masculine and heterosexual point of view from behind the camera. There's the oppositional gaze proposed by Bell Hooks as a tactic of rebellion for black women. Le regard is the act of seeing and being seen and is caught up in power relations, yet in some situations that very act can be turned around. The idea here is that the subject of the gaze generally loses autonomy. Jacques Lacan speaks of the mirror stage, the point at which the child looks in the mirror and realizes that he or she has an external appearance. This self-gazing can trigger a long life of self-consciousness and reinforcement of a sense of a solid self. Neurosis in Buddhism is related to a problem with I and other, mind and space, with identity. Who am I? Where do I fit in? How do others see me? This is the very thing Buddhism wants to re-examine, undo this fixation on a solid eye. So I use Dharma gaze, Dharma as in things as they are, as an antidote with, I hope, a touch of irony. The idea here involves an act, a process, a discipline, or vipassana, a clear seeing of panoramic awareness and the appropriate sense of space. This is what Buddhism seems to ask of us, to gaze through the solid sense of eye without attachment. There's a ritual entitled the Amrit Kundali that is done yearly within the Buddhist Sangha that evolved around the teachings of Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a Lama born in Tibet in 1939, came to the US in 1970, author of many books on Buddhism, a poet, calligrapher, founder of many Dharma institutions, including the first Buddhist-inspired school, Naropa, which Ariella mentioned. I moved with Allen Ginsberg and others to Boulder, Colorado to be part of this unique vision of non-competitive contemplative education with uh, emphasis in the arts. I first attended the Amrit Kundali ritual in the mid-1970s, probably. Amrita is the nectar of immortality, etymologically re related to the Greek ambrosia, appears earliest in the Rig Veda as a synonym for soma, the Vedic ritual drink. Nectar signifies mindfulness in both Buddhism and Hinduism. A ritual nectar is made with alcohol and various grains, including something called dutsi, a kind of brown grain, often mixed with ground up diamonds or other gems. The kundali from kundalini refers to this vital source of energy at the bottom of the spine we know about. The energy supposedly triggers the formation of the child in the womb, and it, it's at the bottom coiling in our spine and holds this force until we die. The Amrit Kundali is designed for young children and even the yet to be born, as I was first anointed when I was pregnant. One approaches, in a shrine room or other suitable ritual space, a large standing mirror. And at the moment of recognition of one's image in the mirror, one is lightly doused with the Amrita nectar sprinkled from a juniper bough. It is precisely this moment of recognition, particularly in the case of the child, that helps cut the attachment to egoic identity, the solid sense of me. It seems especially useful in a culture where this, as I said, reification re of identity, the solid self is problematic. In Buddhism, 
there is no, there's a sense of no solid self or soul for that matter, and best to establish the Dharma gaze early rather than later. So I wanted to conjure here this gaze as an actor instance of Vipassana or clear seeing or perception. This is considered joyous, not a depressing uh, activity. It's a joyous right to look into the mirror and see how empty you are. The child also sees things, others going through the same initiation. So for me, it was a blessing for the nascent growing child consciousness and then a beneficial ceremony later for my child when he was probably about five years old. So again, gazing at emptiness in the mirror, makeup on empty space. One sees the makeup on empty space in the mirror, the makeup of one's appearance. Two, lock a mercy. There was excitement of hearing and later reading the mother goose rhymes and stories as first linked to poetry. There was a particular rhyme less popular than some of the others that was unusually unsettling. Maybe some of you know the old woman and the peddler. Um, so I, I could feel it before I could even read. I could feel it sort of viscerally and still conjures a kind of emotional response. The old woman and the peddler. There was an old woman, as I've heard tell. She went to market, her eggs for to sell. She went to market all on a market day, and she fell asleep on the king's highway. There came by a peddler whose name was Stout. He cut her petticoats all round about. He cut her petticoats up to the knees, which made the old woman to shiver and freeze. When the little old woman first did wait, she began to shiver and she began to shake. She began to wonder and she began to cry. Lock a mercy on me, this can't be I. But if I be I, as I hope it be, I've a little dog at home and he'll know me. If it be I, he'll wag his little tail. And if it be not I, he'll loudly bark and wail. Home went the little woman all in the dark. Up got the little dog and he began to bark. He began to bark and she began to cry, lock a mercy on me, this is none of I. I start to get wobbly there, sorry. So I read it now as a kind of transmission, as allegory in a form for children that seems to evolve to the emotional complexity of you know, archetypal fairy tale myth perhaps. In any case, in my instance, it evoked primordial concern for others and activated much as Blake's human abstracted later gave reason and understanding to cause and effect and the cruelty of the human realm. Pity would be no more if we did not make somebody poor and mercy no more could be if all were as happy as we and mutual fear brings peace till the selfish loves increase then cruelty knits a snare and spreads his baits with care. What is our greatest suffering? That we are not recognized, that we may lack identity, that the world is cruel, that even your little dog conspires against you. This is a warning for the year of the dog. <laughs> Make sure your dog knows you. <laughs> or if he doesn't know you, then, you know, become a religious person. Um, so this question of identity comes up. The situation opens, you know, open to all kinds of sufferance in this harsh world where you may be robbed of the very clothes off your back. I remember during a Buddhist retreat on the streets of New York with uh, Bernie Glassman, who started the Zen Peacemakers group, um, took people to Auschwitz, an amazing actor still alive and working, being warned not to go to a particular homeless shelter because your shoes might be stolen. We were safe for sleeping in the streets near Chinatown where we could take shelter in cartonage from discarded shops that brought huge china vases and knockoff items by a statuary by slow boat. It was chilly out, how you could stand there on a cold street corner, people passing by quickly not seeing you, not wanting to see you. 
But the story of the vulnerable old woman sleeping on the highway, the peddler who clearly needs her goods for his own survival, and the questioning of identity arising. It is said, recognizing the first noble truth of suffering can set you on a path. Prince Siddhartha, the future Buddha, snuck out of his insulated castle and encountered a beggar. He picked up a bone and meditated on birth, old age, sickness, and death. Allegory for all times, all times, as impoverished, stricken migrants move across zones of war and strife, often traveling with just the clothes on their backs. Syria, how much more hellish and cruel can it get? We're all tainted in this, and then the homeless sleeping everywhere in our cities. Nursery rhyme is sacred text. It's curious also that Gertrude Stein references this mother goose rhyme. It's more of a conversation, I think, about pronouns, but she quotes, I am I if my little dog knows me. The ironic comment, so it's a nice little connection. And poetry still worries the pronouns. So I like that about poetry. There is this instability of the pronoun when you say the I is in question. So just to point out this, this sense of I coming into question these instances. Perception, part three, part, little section three. Noble truths, noble because high, wise, primary teaching, the first noble truth, life is suffering, second noble truth, cause of suffering is craving, grasping, fundamental ignorance. We suffer because we are solid, separate, and eternal, think we're eternal. As we try to avoid this delusion, we get trapped further in cyclic existence, this endless wheel of samsara, and as we see the syndicates of samsara that we're living amongst. Third noble truth, this obscuration doesn't have to last. You can work with your perception. You can work with the uh, you know, right view, it's called, and um, somehow shift, a, shift the uh, attention away from yourself. So like clouds that darken the brightness of our enlightenment, another possibility is open to us, which is perception. And the fourth truth of the path, that of practicing, of uh, studying the practices of shamatha, vipassana, the Eightfold Path, the various paramitas that are connected to the bodhisattva vow, keeping the precepts, letting go, cultivating compassion, doing various sadhanas, like this uh, text I was mentioning, the pacifying the turmoil of the manos, mamos, <coughs> chanting, and uh, ritual ceremony, practice, practice, practice. In the Vajrayana, the third vehicle, it is said that you can actually wake up on the spot. You don't need all this other kind of preparation. Just wake up. Wake up on the spot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you wake up too. You wake up too. So, um, and often I've always felt that poetry can wake you up on the spot. So anyway, that constantly for me is this kind of uh, interesting parallel. Eternity Sunrise at the Gates of Perception. I'm going to quote from a, a piece by uh, Reed Bai, who's a poet and teacher at Naropa, a companion there many years. And he's uh, talking briefly about perception. He quotes first the poet George Oppen, 20th century poet, maybe some of you know of, uh, associated somewhat with the objectivists and people such as Zukovsky, but he was his own person, really. Anyway, from Oppen, surely infiniteness is the most evident thing in the world. George Oppen. And then Blake uh, quoted here, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is infinite, for man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. So in this essay, reads, citing this essay, Mind's Own Place by poet George Oppen, 
Oppen writes, modern American poetry begins with the determination to find the image, the thing encountered, the thing seen each day whose meaning has become the meaning and color of our lives. And then Reed says, Oppen goes on to define the image as an account of the poet's perception, the data of experience out of which poets make the poetry of their time. He refers to this image as, quote, the thing encountered and calls its presentation a test of the poet's sincerity. For William Blake, engaging moments of direct perception is the key to imaginative vision. His poetic work sets two kinds of knowing in dynamic opposition, one achieved through direct perception of sense forms and the other through reflection upon those sense forms. He renounces John Locke's understanding of perception as sensations received through mind's encounter with external non-mental objects. In Blake's view, Mental things are alone real. And Northrop Fry, the great studier of Blake, explains that this unit of mental existence, these forms or images, exist only in perception. <coughs> Buddhist tradition has long investigated this phenomenon of perception and seems to agree with Blake. And then this goes into read, and the thing sense and its perceiver occur as a single mental event that the reality paradigm of the, an existent mental subject experiencing non-mental external objects mistakenly partitions perceptual experience into two sides, neither of which exists in a first moment of mental engagement. And the wonderful teacher, Kenshin Trangu, who's based in Kathmandu but comes frequently to the US, says, generally, it seems as if the sense organs and their corresponding faculties were located inside the body and the perceived objects outside the body. From the Buddhist point of view, this is certainly not the case. In our view, the eye consciousness merely perceives a mental image of the form to be perceived. The form is not really external, but merely mental. The mind itself appears in this form. Therefore, we teach that all appearances are mind. Four, cognitive dissonance. <coughs> A childhood burden provoking epiphany or another crack in the world, another lock of mercy for me was navig that navigated me both to Dharma and poetry was my metal dog tag. Some of you must remember the dog tag. I almost wrote mental dog tag, the mental dog tag. This was the identity tag, my name on it, this is in the 50s, my name on it would be useful were I to die in a nuclear holocaust or by the hand of the red commie armies that were coming to take out the little children over in America as sugar plums danced in their heads. My father had served in World War II and I knew something about the bomb dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki even at an early age and the Holocaust that killed millions of Jews and others. I had friends whose families were either devastated in the camps or camp survivors. The enemy might now be coming over the ocean to destroy us in some way, clutching the metal dog tag under my desk. I experienced cognitive dissonance that set me on this kind of path, some kind of investigative path. Of course, we know what that is. Dissonance shatters preconceptions, receive realities. What you're taught is normal and reliable is absolutely not. No one tells you about impermanence, and yet the world is telling you ceaselessly about impermanence. For me, it was a macabre fantasy, imagining the horror of the bomb, my body turned to ash, and yet this dog tag would survive to identify me. This made absolutely no sense. And I wanted to live with another kind of imagination. Five, by the river of swirling eddies. 
introduced to the River Merchant's Wife. I'm sure many of you were. I was introduced to it, I think, in junior high school, the uh, wonderful Lee Poe. It's a pounds construction. I mean, it's really a cut up of Ezra Pound. He had access to the uh, work of Ernest Fenollosa, who had passed away, but and Pound never knew him, but he had access to his papers, translations, notes, and uh, his book, Cafe, relied heavily on that. And that came out in about 1915 and then reprinted a lot. But this was a very popular poem in, when I was growing up. And this is in uh, public school, actually. And it sort of set me to encourage an interest in other Asian poetries. Again, it's a kind of construct. And if you look at a, a, a literal translation of the poem, it, it doesn't have quite the same power, although a lot of, this, a lot of the images are there. Um, there's more notes on that. Li Po, I'm sure some of you know of the work of. Uh, 701, born pro probably. But anyway, the point being that it, it was sort of opened up another, uh, another gaze toward um, Asian literature, Asian poetries, of course, coming upon Basho, Hanshan, Li Po, Du Fu. And I, I don't know if there's time to read the poem. Do you all know the poem? River Merchant's Wife. Okay, we'll skip. But I, you know, this sense of time passing, of loss, you drag your feet, she's 15, I stop scowling. Sorry, just be 16, you depart, you drag your feet when you went out, the gate, the moss has grown, the mosses, autumn, yellow, window, I grow older, they heard me, and so on. So again, this, what? Okay, thank you. It's a vision of childhood. And you know, just finding out about these things. But it's great when it's coming through poetry and literature. I mean, it's the world is giving you these things all that, this is the brilliant, Christine Davis, so what? You come up. <laughs> no, 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 I need to skip this poem. I have to keep moving. Um, free to possess truth. Okay, anyway, growing, just turn towards dharma, turn towards poetry, turn towards these specific, and, and then also interested, of course, in the transcendentalists that was coming in in high school. I mean, you, you're full of it here, it's amazing. I have to get to that Emerson Hall, maybe in the middle of the night. Tonight we'll make a raid on the Emerson Hall. Um, and the, so the Transcendentalists, I was at the Sackler yesterday, I remember when I first came to Boston, looking at the Asian art. I mean, it's a very important part of the, this country in terms of uh, these kinds of things. And I think um, very important for many people who came, you know, first saw these sorts of things in their worlds. So, and then my mother, so I grew up in this Bohemian ho household in Greenwich Village, sympathetic mother who had been involved with a utopian community a number of years in Greece in the late 20s until the war started, weaving her own clothes. She was involved with a project calling itself the Renaissance, the new ideal, the new utopia um, around the poet uh, Ancalos Siclianos and his, his wife Eva, who was American, Siglianos's wife was a great model for my mother. My mother was 19 when she went over, lived there a decade. My, my half-brother was born there. In any case, you know, the sense of a utopian ideal around the arts, around bringing art into public space, around living, you know, they were almost like Luddites at one point with their woven clothes. And, and as I was uh, growing up in Manhattan, she would, Every Halloween, I had to be a Greek goddess <laughs> and wear, wear these schmatas that my mother had woven and then, and then the special sandals that Gertrude Stein had also worn, who was loosely connected to this group of folk. And these sandals that were, my mother would hand make and cut out with a knife 
sort of very raggedy, and then this one <laughs> continuous strip, and then hammered with nails, and then have to dry overnight with some kind of more than a week, several weeks with water and some kind of oil treatment. So finally, I had to go to a school dressed strange. <laughs> um, and then I, you know, reading Rambo like every poet at a young age. I shall be free to possess truth in one soul and one body. And, and I intuited something of this notion of the seer. One must be a seer, make oneself a seer. And the derangement of the senses, he arrives at the unknown because he has cultivated his own soul, which was rich to begin with more than any other man. Seer poet relates to shamanism, magical states of mind, exorcism, etc., knowledge, wisdom. Uh, seer was self-reliant, no outside God or deity is going to save you in the Tibetan tradition. There's this radical sense of crazy wisdom, which relates to some of this energy, and also of the root for the word history, which the poet Charles Olson was all about, isterin, to find out for oneself. And, con you know, this was early self-reliance, finding out for yourself, reliance on your own mind, it's untapped wisdom. And, we already know what we need to know. We would say in the early days of Naropa University, that was one of Gregory Corso's favorite things to say. I don't know if I agree that we already know what we need. We need to know a lot more. <laughs> That's why we're in big trouble. And then this resonant with negative capability. And in Buddhism, there's something called co-emergent wisdom. Both, both, the middle path. Energy is a kind of city or accomplishment. I mean, energy, energy is basically neutral, and then it's filtered through our neurosis or our enlightened mind, and it can go either way, but basically it's, it's neutral. What unworldly love that has no hope of the world and cannot change the world to its delight. Beautiful line from William Carlos Williams that Ginsburg fre frequently referenced. Unworldly, what is that? Not fitting in some kind of energy, tenderness, compassion that cannot persuade the world to its delight as much as it tries the skillful means of unworldly love, the aspiration of unworldly love, this kind of a sense of aspiration. That was my thought, clutching my dog tag. You know, there's another world. There's got to be another world. When I was working on the Manatee Humanity Project, I was doing research in the Manatee and went to this wonderful Museum of Skeletons in Paris where you see all this, they're all washed white, these bones and all these animals lined up and the manatee is right next to the elephant with whom it shares, they're actually quite related, going back uh, quite, a few, quite a few years. And you see this aspiration in the chest, this movement forward, this movement forward and out. And I, I, that image for me is like this unworldly love, you know, trying to get out and above and keep moving. Um, so that, you know, thinking about that as a kind of koan, what does that mean? No hope of the world, cannot change the world. So some Buddhist terms were coming into uh, play with some reading, upaya, pragna, the nature of masculine and feminine energy, upaya, skillful means, um, and pragna, the wisdom of space, of Tathagatagarbha, the womb-like nurturing space of feminine energy. Pratityat samutpada, the interconnectedness and co-arising of all sentient beings, which includes everything. Um, and there's particular chants that reference that. And then I was also coming into contact with the more experimental strains of what's referred to as the New American Poetry. Um, you know, like everybody, I was reading Powell, Naked Lunch. I was interested in writing out a vision, prophecy, mantra, out of being a seer. And Buddha meant the awakened one. That was always a reminder in terms of what one wanted to do. 
and this is from an old poem of Ginsburg's Memory Gardens, and while I'm here, I'll do the work, and what's the work? To ease the pain of living, everything else drunken dumb show, which is a great, uh, you know, it's like the Bodhisattva vow. Seven, Wang Yal in the Six Realms, introduced to the great Lama of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition when I was 18 years old, uh, Mongolian Lama Geshe Wang Yal. He had come to America first in 1995, established the Tibetan Buddhist Learning Center in New Jersey in 58. And he'd settled, when I met him, he'd settled in uh, Freehold, New Jersey in a pink suburban house. I was working that summer, I was 64, with a, in a, at a Quaker site, but with a group of artists in Philadelphia, the jazz musicians Jimmy and Percy Heath, poet editor Harvey Brown. The Lama was also being regularly visited by students at Harvard, including the brilliant later scholar, translator Robert Thurman. Close friend of mine had also been at Harvard and was himself a seeker, had first taken me there. So I was really young encountering the Lama. I'm just gonna quote from a little memoir of, of Thurman's where he writes beautifully of Geshe Wangyal. Geshe Wangyal's presence, it was hard to speak. My knees felt weak and my stomach unsettled. Yet the amazing thing was that Wangyal himself seemed as if he were not there. He had nothing to do with me, to me, or for me. He seemed fully content and unconcerned for himself. When I couldn't find him, I was forced to ask myself, where is this me I've been pursuing? At 21 years old, after dropping out of school, leaving a new marriage, barely able to take care of myself, I felt a hint of something beyond myself. Geshe Wangyal was unlike anyone I had ever met. As a teenage monk, he had nearly died of typhoid in the hot Black Sea summer. His mother heard that the monks had given him up for dead, so she came to the monastery and spent three days sucking the pus and phlegm out of his throat and lungs to keep him from suffering, suffocating. When he awoke, the first thing he was told was that she had succumbed to the disease she saved him from and died on the very day he recovered. He was appalled when he observed that though he felt grief at the news, another current in his mind would not let him think of anything else except his overwhelming thirst after his 10-day fever. Noting this dreadful degree of selfishness, he resolved then and there to give his last ounce to freeing himself and others from involuntary selfish impulses. I've never encountered such unconditional compassion directly in my life. So Wang Yil had a retinue of young monks, and when we entered the house, I felt extremely magnetized by the atmosphere, although I was confused. I had studied a little bit of religion in high school, a comparative religion class, and I thought Buddhists were all vegetarians. <laughs> so there was this retinue of young monks all gnawing on chicken bones, like throwing <laughs> the bones on the floor, and I was confused. And then also there were these wild uh, tankas, these multi armed and red-skinned dakinis with skulls around their necks and stomping on the corpses of ego, a wheel of life tanka showing the 12-fold nadana chain, the causal chain from birth to old age, suffering death in the center of the wheel, and you're seeing it up there, the three kleshas, the obscurations, the negative, the neurotic energies of passion, ignorance, aggression, whirling in a continual samsaric wheel, the bird, the pig, the snake. And at one point he, these guys I was with, because there were no women around, said, you can't wear any makeup. I was not wearing much makeup in those days, but I probably put on a little lipstick and I probably had something, I think, proper. But they were starting to criticize me. You must do this with the llama. You must behave in this way. Not, and I said, where are the women? You know, and the women were all on the walls. These wild, naked, you know, <laughs> green and red dakinis and various Vajrayogini and green taras. And there's a 21 wheel of all the different colors of Tara, and so it was a little confusing, and it was Gary Snyder who said, later he felt that 
in terms of being a Zen practitioner himself and knowing a lot about the different uh, strains and strands of Dharma throughout the world, but that he thought that Tibetan Buddhism would be more attractive to women because there were so many women in the iconography and so many, uh, a, a lot of attention to this Tathagatagarbha and nurturing womb-like wisdom, prajna, prajna paramita, and so on. So I think, you know, that was interesting to hear from a guy. And um, then I thought, okay, I'll embrace it. I'll just embrace something here. And those guys, you know, they can keep their hair short. And anyway, that's a whole other that diversion. So anyway, the six realms, hot and cold realms, here one becomes frozen or burning and fixated suffering, hungry ghost realm of the Pretos, small necks, big bellies, never have enough, get enough, insatiable hunger, be it literal or psychological, poverty mentality, the animal realm of paranoia, paranoia always anxious about being devoured by the larger creature coming at you on the food chain. Perhaps animals are absent a sense of humor. That was some description of the um, animal realm I wondered about. Um, the human realm, which is understood as the most generative place, an opportunity for communication, recognition, waking up, being able to appreciate things as they are, self-reflect, seeing the emptiness of all composite things. The warring god realm, very much Pentagon-style mentality, where you need to create an enemy to sustain that juice, the seductive state of warring mind. And then the Deva Loka, or God realm, the blissed out realm, rock and roll, eternalism, the next plateau of self. You think you're going to live forever. You dine and imbibe well. You get nervous about aging. The seat eventually gets hot, and you tumble back into the hell realm and start all over again. I'll just read from, you know, I've looked at these books. These books are all just so infused, and Charles was saying, so infused with Buddhism. I don't know where to stop and start. It's just so much a part of something of it. So this is the structure of the world compared to a bubble, which was a trip to the extraordinary Barobador stupa, long history of the uncovering of that stupa, the various, um, has anybody been there to Barobador? Right. Well? Yeah, amazing. Yeah, extraordinary. And it lays out, I mean, it's a whole map and a mandala of the Bodhisattva Mahayana path. And so I, I went there and I started reading it as a book and then I had to create something. I mean, it became, it was a pilgrimage going there and then you walk and dawn and you, you know, you find your way. It's kind of Dante, you know, like the, going through the three, three realms of Dante and coming to the top and at the top that empty, the empty cage, there's no Buddha at the end and they don't know if it was stolen or not, but it's very powerful to get to the top and there's no, the central figure is not there. Um, and then all these different sutras that are uh, in the wall carvings that were originally painted. Anyway, very rich history. And I discuss a lot of the history in the introduction and there are some diagrams and pictures. So it was a, you know, a very extraordinary intervention and I don't do it justice. And that's another thing. I apologize for all my not being a good practitioner, not being a good Buddhist. Uh, worrying about my poetry. I mean, every time you hear a Dharma teacher speak, they're always apologizing for not getting it right, so I, I apologize. <laughs> but I'm going to read from a text. This is from the Warring God Realm, from Structure of the World. Warring God Realm, distressed God gossip and suspicious eyes. <clears throat> 
See back of all the hidden corners. Everyone is me, my own, the enemy. Everyone is, oh, you ministers and robber barons of death. Everyone is, oh, you traffickers in body parts and banknotes of death. Everyone is looking at you from behind your back, the agent provocateurs of desire behind your back, backing you up. I say I have eyes in the back of my head, eyes in every pore. I say I have probing eyes to take you out. I say, cosmos positioning machines to monitor every mood swing. I say, thermal imaging devices to spot you six miles away at any time of the day or night. You better come out of your cave, your nook, your cranny, your crack dope den, your crevasse, your secret planet, or stop hiding your missiles behind the moon and take the heat. I say all this, plot a moment, maintain this dangerous A moment, secure the building, fix the opponent, measure the progress, take the heat. Language is a game, a distress, a war, a game. Language is a quill in hand performance. All the particles of desire in language could make you name the weapons in space, relative or absolute space. All corners are suspicious and distressed in my distressing language of dominance and oblivion. See through you all the corners, all my distressed warring god gossip and suspicious eyes, eyes in every suspicious pore. See me, see through my red-green eyes. See me continually monitoring you through my cold greed eyes. You will never get the jump on me, Golden, who is there first, oppressing you with preemptive motion, preemptive erotics of distressing war motion to make the first move. Fair trial? Never. To you who have authority to demand records from business, bank, credit unions, pawnbrokers, car dealers, casinos, consummate genocide, I say, where is foreplay? I say this in my destructo swarmbot voice, in my robo-bug voice, I say, fuck me, don't fuck with me, in my nat robot threat detector voice, don't play games with me, who sees all the hidden corners out of my robo-bug eyes, all the suspicious preemptive moves. I'm extremely efficient with my proud destructo swarmbot jaw, with proud face to show you accuracy in every cranial blow I administer. I say, I sing, I am resolute in moil and toil, and I'll sing a patriotic cannibal song, a transformative get-down-and-grovel deportation song. I'll sing of warfighter, of orbital imaging, and surveillance of arms and no man, of arms in space and no man left behind, and no man in space when we can launch our kinetic energy rods, our oxygen suckers, our happy suppression clouds, our big deal cluster satellites, our holographic decoys, our sexy microwave guns, when we will launch our 360-degree sword-mounted displays, our pyrotechnic electromagnetic pulses, our searing fleshettes, space, oh, I sing of space, the injured Dharmakaya space, the sweet relative space, everything capitalized and romanticized in the high German noun space, in American empire space, and in the ultimate high ground space, a tower from which to pour boiling oil. I say global battle space dominance. I say full spectrum dominance and pour more boiling oil. We must, O oh earthlings, have the ability to control the high ground of space with our hyperspectral subtle light signature observation device, which distinguishes a field of oats from a field of barley and tells you the specific species of oats and whether the field contains, is it natural or genetically altered oats? And whether the field is infested with insects or damaged by nitrogen depletion and tanks under trees. I sing thus in my holographic battlefield deception voice of tanks under trees. I sing, oh sing, of what will be no space left behind and will be able, suspicious eyed with our distressed robo eyes in all the corners of our body, will be able to discern the unique 
light signatures of extremely specific things like tanks resting under trees covered in camouflage or tanks painted with a paint made them to look not like tanks resting under trees. So if the bad guys are hiding tanks under trees and you have a good idea of what the bad guy's tank is like and you know what the local trees look like, you can just screen out the tree's wavelength and just see the tank's signature. Then you'll know if there's something bad under that tree and you can bank in spectral light Ray scary library and oats of infinite space and time and barley time. I say, I sing, we're just putting another arrow in our quiver and you can spend your days imagining how an enemy might exploit space because it is our manifest destiny to exploit space and it is a dangerous world out there. So that's the War and God realm. And those terms, destructo, these are actual terms. I did a study of these these guys with you know these boys with toys just creating these things and these are the names they give them destructo warbots I mean it's so <laughs> nuts it's so nuts okay back to the narrative um, I think got to that and what how's our time poets I remember Gary Snyder once saying that he understood, I told you that Tibetan Buddhism more when uh, I could go on a little more about that, but Diane DePrima became a student of Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi, the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center in 1962. She writes, I sat because he sat to know his mind. It was the first time in my 28 years that I had encountered another human being and felt trust. It blew my tough, sophisticated young artist's mind. She was also one of the early uh, founders at Kerouac School. She had taken formal vows with Trungpa. Does this funny poem, I fail as a Dharma teacher. I don't imagine I'll manage to express shunyata in a way that all my students will know and love or present the Four Noble Trees so they look delicious and tempting as Easter candy. My skillful means is more like a two by four banging on the head of a reluctant driver and then I, I then go in and save. What pyro, pyrotechnics. Um, anyway, I visited her in 1963. I felt affinity with her alchemical studies, her Shrine she had, her work in theater, um, she had Buddhist icons, some things on the walls. And then I was, you know, trying to understand how they were used. They were clearly devices for practices. Then um, Lou Welch, Reed College in 48, I met him in San Francisco pretty early on. He lived at the East West House. He was always trying to find ways to live in the wilderness as a, in a, as a hermit. Uh, gripped by a depression while staying with Gary Snyder in the Sierra foothills. May of um, 1971, he wandered off and body never found. A Zen meditation hall was christened Ring of Bone after his poem of that name. I saw myself a ring of bone in the clear stream of all of it and vowed always to be open to it that all of it might flow through and then heard ring of bone where a ring is what a bell does. And Philip Whalen, who li had lived in Japan 60s, 66, 67, was there in 69, 71, and then later took up residence at the Zen Center in 92, became a Zen priest in 73, and was the Shuso, or acting head monk at Tassajara Zen Center, ordained as an abbot of the Hartford Zen Center in 1991, and I went to that ceremony, it was very, very moving, it was uh, a kind of, I mean, really, reeked of the Dharma, <laughs> but also an extraordinary poet, and the, and the Dharma took care of him. He was not, he, 
didn't have means to live and work in a way. But he, he was at Naropa in the early years and taught beautifully. I praise those ancient Chinamen. This is Hymnus Ad Patrem Sinensis. I praise those ancient Chinamen who left me a few words, usually a pointless joke or a silly question, a line of poetry drunkenly scrawled on the margin of a quick splash picture, bug leaf caricature of teacher on paper held together now by little more than ink and their own strength brushed momentarily over it. Their world and several others since gone to hell in a handbasket. They knew it, cheered as it whizzed by and conked out among the busted spring rain, cherry blossom wine jars, happy to have saved us all. Michael McClure had written the line, consciousness is a real thing like the hoof of a deer, and written many poems inspired from his naturally Buddhist and ecological activist thinking. Uh, Ghost Tantras, a very wonderful early book, resemble for me the ancient sort of timeless deep sound of Tibetan mantra chanting. Joanne Kiger, a longtime student of Buddhism, traveled uh, first to Japan in 1970, uh, early marriage to Gary Snyder. Beloved Joanne, terrific poet, passed away uh, just about a year ago. And then this famous trip with Ginsburg and Snyder and Olofsky, during which he kept a fabulous irreverent journal, which I recommend to everyone, especially the feminists in the room. A hilarious description of meeting the Dalai Lama with Allen Ginsberg, who just wanted to read Howl to the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and Peter Olofsky had his long, greasy hair, and Joanne said, the better to hide drugs behind or something. <laughs> and then she said, and I'm just standing around in my black, drip-dry dress waiting for some wild martini attention. <laughs> so she, Gary was very methodical about going, visiting all the sites, and they were on a you know, a real pilgrimage, and Alan has, was looking for a teacher, and he did, he did meet the uh, Dujum Rinpoche, who said, if you see something beautiful, don't attach to it. If you see something ugly, don't attach to it. And that's, Alan came back with that nugget. Meanwhile, he, you know, had spent a lot of time on the, at the various Hindu shrines. At one point, he was asked to be the uh, lineage holder of the Hare Krishna. I mean, wouldn't the if Allen Ginsberg had become the, anyway, that's a whole other <laughs> gaze. That's another gaze. We'll say that for another time. Um, moving right along, and then there were, oh, Joanne, I have to read a little short poem of Joanne's. Little Neural Annie was fined $65 in the Oakland traffic court this season for driving while in a state of samadhi. <laughs> California's secular law requires that all drivers of motor vehicles reform I'm sorry, all drivers of motor vehicles remain firmly seated within their bodies while the vehicle is in motion. This applies to both greater vehicles and lesser vehicles. <laughs> um, so Ginsburg, Eastern trip to India I mentioned, then he took Trungpa as a root teacher, Sawat Lama in the early 70s. We co-founded the Kerouac School in Boulder in 74 and Diane was there, John Cage had come through. After Trungpa's death, Alan took vows with Gelik Rinpoche, a lama who recently passed away. Gelik had a retinue of monks that practiced for hours after Alan's death. And remember when Gelik announced that Alan's consciousness had passed on and it made a very good transition. So mantra had often exploded in Alan's poems. I really credit him with bringing mantra from India because he studying, he had his harmonium, and he brought it into political activism, which is quite unique. I mean, I don't know that that had been done. Of course, you had 
you know, incredible warlike songs going on, and, and certainly the Greeks with their meters going into battle, da 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 So Alan was chanting mantra at the, you know, these demonstrations in, at the uh, Democratic Convention, at the things, uh, subsequent things in Chicago, and it, and it became a way of helping still the situation. So that's always an interesting uh, link of what he brought back. Also, uh, Chupal Jayakar, who I met in India, she was the Minister of Culture at one point, but she credited Alan with bringing khadi cloth, you know, the simple white uh, cotton cloth, back to India and turning us all on to Indian clothes. So just thinking of the connections between poets and uh, Alan has also a poem about Ganges and Passaic, New Jersey, Patterson won when William Carlos Williams dies. He's, he writes a great poem in India where he puts those together. So that's always been interesting to me, the particular link with these writers that I became associated to, and there are many more examples, I'm sure. So I'm gonna jump. I wanna get to Agamben. It's a section on where were the women, but we'll always come back to that. Buddhist Anarchism, I recommend this text by Gary Snyder, written in 61, was extraordinary to read it then and to read it now. Just a couple of quotes. Uh, I think it's really important to, well, no, to take this in. No one today can afford to be innocent or indulge himself in innocence of the nature of contemporary governments, politics, and social orders. The national polities of the modern world maintain their existence by deliberately fostered craving and fear, monstrous protection rackets. The free world has become economically dependent on a fantastic system of stimulation of greed, which cannot be fulfilled, sexual desire, which cannot be satiated, and hatred, which has no outlet except against oneself. The persons one is supposed to love or the revolutionary aspirations of pitiful, poverty-stricken, marginal societies like Cuba or Vietnam, the conditions of the Cold War, have turned all modern societies, communist included, into vicious distorters of man's true potential. They create populations of preta, hungry ghosts with giant appetites and throats no bigger than needles. The soil, the forest, and all animal life are being consumed by these cancerous collectivities. The air and water of the planet is being fouled by them. Just a little bit from Hungry Ghost. Hungry ghost that dwells in consciousness that torments our desire. Sexy ghost, a performer, a demon, a gadfly, to never have enough, be enough, get enough. Dancing on coals, in a state of mind unsatisfied, unsettled over what he thinks, she thinks, what they think, what the I thinks, hieroglyphs for the hungry ghost. Unsatisfied, dancing on nails, jostled by waves, the real kind that pull you under, turbulent in a shadow realm between waking and sleeping. Sleeping with a hungry ghost who writes your book. Hungry ghost, a web, a film, a trail, a latent thought set down that won't let go. The watcher watching you in your hungry ghost fabrication. Hungry ghost, the war machine, sleeping with a humming war machine. Hungry ghost that is a blur between worlds, thrumming on filaments of desire. Threads of desire constantly broken, strings plucked and snapped. The connection, the fix is in, the fix is in, the fix is in for the hungry ghost who sings in lamentation, singing to be a ghost and so very hungry. The fix is in, the fix is in. Attachment, which is a ghost of yearning, yearning for existence. The fix is in, yearning for sustenance. Fix is in, hungry ghost of the Jurassic, large omnivores startling you with appetite. Hungry ghost, ancient in mind, continuity of the mind of all primordial 
hungry goes ravaged and ravaging, ravaged, and we'll have ravage, we'll ravage, we'll ravage hues of glorious white light that pursue you everywhere, spotlight on desire. How can we ever feed your ravenous hounds? And so on. Um, goes into rocky flats here about the, anyway, it goes on and on, as you can see. 13 metric tons of plutonium, some in liquid form. Hungry ghost, hungry ghost, uranium, americium, bellurium, dioxin carbide, tetrachloride, $7 billion to clean up a hungry ghost, American mess, underground dark deeds of empire. Hungry ghost, the small thistle, atomic detonators at the core of every bomb in the nation's nuclear arsenal. Hungry ghost, the pico curies of plutonium to ram in the soil three to six feet down. Radioactive leach fields, buried shells, landfills, and dirt-covered mounds. Hungry ghost, <coughs> hungry ghost hidden from the prying eyes. Continuing toxic brews, contaminated oil, volatile organic compounds, heavy metals, heavy metal, heavy metal, deformed animals born near the sites, hungry ghosts, hungry ghosts that dwells in consciousness, torments our desire and so on. But I used to, with the work we were doing to fight Rocky Flats, I would go take my child and others to a place to ride horses at a farm where there were deformed animals being born, uh, you know, without eyes, without a leg, and uh, there was one TV special. It was you know, seen as the most toxic place on the planet at one point in the 70s. And it started in the 50s. Okay, moving right along. I next um, encountered the Lama Chatral Sangay Dorje Rinpoche, who was a rugged uh, non-Tulku Lama, who um, was a, known for his uh, shunning of institutional political involvement. He was a, a lay yogin. And I went to see him, I was drawn to this quality, and he seemed a weathered rock that had been left out in the elements. This teacher had been a woman. He would go down to the town of Siliguri, this is near Darjeeling, on full moon days, and buy up all the fish in the market and release them back to water. Didn't stand on pomp or ceremony. I remember during my refuge vow there with him, I, I was told I had to give up my imagination, and I put my finger behind <laughs> my back. That's the biggest transgression. I'm working on it, and um, I was holding back for poetry. He said, go back into your world, keep practicing, come back, I'll give you anything you want. I went to Bodh Gaya and started prostrating around the temple there. But he had this, there was a Belgian nun, Buddhist nun, who had come for teaching from him. And he put her out in the pastures for a year to tend the cows. I was like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Anyway, uh, I had to get back to the poetry project and anyway, poetry scenes. So that's just a little side note. Um, and then, Kalyana Mitra, the sense of the spiritual friend, feeling certain mentors in my life, like the poet Edwin Demby, a brilliant uh, dance critic who very close to uh, Balanchine and his work. Uh, I was spent a lot of time with him as a younger person. I would sit with him at the New York City Ballet, and he has a fantastic book called About Seeing, How to Look at Things, Dancers, Buildings, and People in the Streets. And so, you know, feeling this kind, there was, you know, spiritual teaching or whatever, know how to wake up teaching coming from someone such as N, uh, Denby and studies poetry as a map. You study, you know, the map of the Buddhist yanas, the Hinayana, Mahayana, et cetera, the realms, the blah, blah, blah. And then in poetry, symbolism, surrealism, deep image, composition by field, concrete poetry, Dada, Duende, all the forms of the new American poetry, language poetry, uh, Black Arts, the Umbra Group, 
Jerry Rothenberg's line, idea of negritude, tribalism, wilderness, notion of gradually becoming Xinjiang, processed or steeped in both Dharma and poetry. Xinjiang does the images being like in a washing machine where you get turned around and turned around and come out sort of, you know, Xinjiang. <laughs> processed, you're deeply processed. So it was so extraordinary to be steeped in community and so on, and si such a critical time that we're in. This is supposedly the early Kali Yuga. And many world wisdom traditions talk about the uh, difficulties of this dark time. Things are speeded up. The mamo chances, children not listening to their parents' words. The sky is filled with purple clouds of sickness, pa plague, famine, war, <coughs> hurricanes, floods, fires, etc. So the refuge vow, probably some of you know what that is. You're, you know, you're sort of becoming a refugee in this practice and tradition. You're kind of uh, homeless for a while. That's the view. I have, you know, there's some notes on that, but I think I will skip to uh, this last part on how are we contemporary with one's time, which I like to talk about, uh, referencing Giorgio Agamben, the wonderful Italian philosopher. We have in Poetics, Gertrude Stein's The continuing present, Continuous Present. The verbs are important here, the present tense, now and now and now. We also have the dictum in the mind of the poet, all times are contemporaneous, paraphrase of Ezra Pound, which turns us to the great mystery and beauties of the archaic, how so much of modernist poetics we inherit comes from very palpable discoveries in the 19th century, and what we still feed off of, the decipherment of the Rosetta Stone, the undeciphered Indus Valley script, the power of the Devanagari, the Amphala Stone, the discovery of cuneiform Gilgamesh, the discovery of libraries as ancient as cities, and of the Chaldean sense that chaos meant without a library. I love that. That's what chaos is, without a library. So get ready. No wonder we're having trouble here on <laughs> planet Earth. Um, where are the contemporary discoveries that infect and inflect our poet consciousness? What new science informs our consciousness? What do we draw on to be contemporary with our time? Why does one go to literature and art instead of sometimes history, make sense of the continuous present? Um, what one sees in you know, ancient forms like the Kutiyam and Indian dance form, the Balinese dance and Gamelan forms? What are the possibilities with this vast social network we're in? our ever-proliferating Indra's net, our past and future yugas, whole world systems, vast movements of time, where the questions essential to our being circulate. What new psychic inscriptions of magic and science of animal being or plant being? What wonders of the continuum are ongoing proof? We are not alone in a solipsistic ignorance to earth our charge. What is our connectivity, our adhesiveness? Giorgio Agamben, the Italian philosopher, suggests that the poet, the contemporary, must firmly hold his, her gaze on his, her own time so as to perceive not its light, but rather its darkness. He posits that the contemporary is the person who perceives the darkness of the time as something that concerns him or her, as something that never ceases to engage one. And darkness is something that turns directly towards all of us when we are receptive to its wisdom. Quote, the contemporary is the one whose eyes are struck by the darkness that comes from his own time. He goes on to discourse on, discourse on how within the study of neurophysiology of vision, the absence of light actually activates a series of peripheral cells in the retina called off cells. And when activated, these cells produce a particular kind of vision we call darkness. Thus, darkness is not a privative form, a deprivation, a notion of absence or void, but rather the result of these off cells and a product of our own retina. 
Also in an expanding universe, the most remote galaxies move away from us at a speed so great that their light is never able to reach us. What we perceive as the darkness of the heavens is this light, and this is the common, that though traveling toward us cannot reach us since the galaxies from which the light originates move away from us at a velocity greater than the speed of light. To perceive in this darkness of the present, this light that's trying to reach us but cannot, I don't know if it's trying, but it can't reach us or it hasn't. This is what it means to be contemporary, he says. Agamemnon talks about fixing one's gaze on the darkness of the epic we live in, but also being able to perceive in the darkness the light directed to us as it distances itself. He likens it to an appointment one cannot help but miss. That leaves us, us <coughs> humans here thinking about all this, in a puzzling struggle to grasp our time with a form of too early that is also too late, of an already that is also not yet. I think poetry has to move and engage with some of this liminal and linguistic behavior into this kind of aporia of both both, of negative capability. Uh, Keats's term, which you must all know. Yes. No, yes, good. And um, being positioned on or in within the doorway, which is the stance one finds in a kind of trembling state of heightened awareness of, as if one is caught in the web of life and the distant starlight already passed. This is the most, um, you know, it, it seems to inform just a way to be, again, perception, a kind of way of be taking one stand in this crazy time and this whatever it is. And, um, and, and it re resonates a little with, a little bit with entanglement, you know, the quantum entanglement with co-emergent wisdom, tamagishepa, and the Buddhist sense of that, born together, born, you know, things being connected uh, across vast distances. Uh, and also time and space got kind of deconstructed in this. The Dalai Lama has said that as things come reveal, become more revealed through science and certain kind of study investigation about our existence, uh, that Buddhism might have to change, you know, the truth of that, which I find very generous. So um, I find this question of how we are contemporary, what the poet's position might be in writing and in our work of living, extremely generative. Query is always the pedagogy. Isterin, to find out for oneself, and so on. Um, and I also liken it, you know, we get so, we can get so caught in this kind of uh, static state. And an image comes up for me when I was working with the Naropa program in Indonesia, specifically in Bali. There's the Chandi Bentar, the gate, the gate of the temple where you come out into the public space. It's open at the top, and you're, you're you know, there's the inner sanctum, where the deities are kept, the idols in their little shrine boxes, and then there's the middle ground where there's sort of a preparation, and then the figure, depends on which kind of ceremony, dancer, in this case it's male dancer, not masked, and is standing in the ch Chanti Bendor, pen, Pentar, and, and is coming into, and can be standing there like this for a half an hour. And so I sometimes feel like that, that you know, you can be caught in this, it hasn't happened, it's already happened yet, or how do you position yourself, or how do you move forward in this crazy time? How do you actually step out into that space? Um, and so, you know, thinking about that, and then finally it can happen, you know, what does it take? What is it? I mean, it's, all, it's a combination of things. Sometimes it's helpful to see the emptiness of it all, or the impermanence of it all, or see it as the fullness of it all at the same time, because it's always this flickering, both, both. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form, and emptiness doesn't mean nothing, or it, it, it's not a um, privative, or it's like the dark cells, it's, it's a full of, 
energy and um, it's a great mystery. I think I'll probably just end with a couple of very short things. Um, I do want to end with one. This is, uh, there's a section in here called Vowed Poetry. I'm not, I mean, and also the word performance coming from, you know, Middle English, part for what it is to take, to come into public space, performing an, a rite, an act redone, a ritual, and so on. Um, anyway, I don't need to go there. But this is a great quote from Pogue Harrison, Robert Pogue Harrison's Forest, The Shadows of Civilization. It's a great shout out for the poets. So I have to bring that into the mix. I'll read this for you because we talk, you brought poetry into this dynamic here. Thank you. The scale of transformations we are witnessing today has no precedent either in natural or cultural history. The global uprooting of both nature and humanity make each and every one of us a refugee of sorts. How long we remain refugees on the earth, no one can say. But the fact of homelessness has now become obvious even to the most privileged or protected members of the human family. What is not obvious to us, on the other hand, are the potential saving forces that one day may rise up against the tide of nihilism. It may be well that in the future, these decades will be remembered, if anybody's there to remember them. I always say it's the slime molds are going to inherit the earth and they'll remember us, but we'll have to learn, uh, we have to translate for them first before we go. Um, it may be well that in the future, these decades will be remembered above all for the improbable existence of a handful of poets who brought the old household gods into hiding. From our present perspective, nothing seems more superfluous to the contemporary turbulence of history than poets, yet our present perspective may turn out to be the most superfluous thing of all. This much is certain, at a time when the gods have no choice but to flee from the falling city of man, it is only the poets who can take them into their safekeeping. And I'm just gonna take a few more poems. I'm just gonna talk a little bit about the Manatee Project, which uh, is based on a, a Buddhist rite called the Kala Chakra initiation. It's an initiation around the nature of time and presented more and more in the West. It's supposed to be an important uh, sadhana for the dark times that we're in. It's usually a five-day ceremony involving all kinds of ritual implements, various instructions about your dreams, uh, given a piece of kusha grass to put under your pillow and under your uh, body and your, and your bed and remember the dreams you have at particular times of the night and day. So it's you know, it becomes very, it invades your whole uh, being for existence for those days. But I wanted to do something taking on a endangered life form. And I spent a little time with manatee and started to investigate the life form where it had originated, what it was close to, various details on, you know, the manatee having more gray matter in the brain than man. And the manatee becomes the center of the of the initiation of the mandala. So I put the manatee in for this other uh, copulating couple. And, uh, and that was, you know, coming on the heels, I think, of structure, structure of the world. And I talk a little bit in the, again, there's, you know, this very prosaic, didactic introductions, because I'm not sure I'm making these points clearly enough. <laughs> 
and Buddhism, I mean, it's interesting. It's so welcoming to be here because in my usual world, although there's Naropa in the backdrop of that and these things have been entwined, they're my two passions for forever, but it's also understood you kind of don't belabor it. So to be invited to actually speak of these things is very special to me and I'm quite grateful. And when uh, Structure of the World came out, people, my friends didn't feel like they could comment. They don't, I don't know anything about Buddhism or, anyway, it's, it's, um, Anyway, very nice to be able to expose a little of this. So I talk about the, I, it's called Undercurrent. The poem takes its initial inspiration from this particular teaching from the Buddhist tradition with links to a pre-Vedic shamanic ritual. Um, goes on, the days it takes, the outer inner. Just let me go to the end of this. Um, What's so astonishing in this obsessive ritual description, there's descriptions of what the color chakra is. I've mentioned Jack Spicer and the idea of the, the kind of radio being on. All radios are not this from a parallel perspective. Intensity of our experience, nor the dramas of our discursive thoughts and moods affect the clear light mind that is also on. Each stream of continuity is individual as well. All radios are not the same, though their receivers work the same way. In this view, there's no such thing as a universal mind in which our minds all participate, but rather myriad, unique, individual pathways, innumerable possibilities. One of Spicer's metaphors for the poet is the radio. The poet is always on. And what is the mind of manatee was a question for this poem. There seems something wonderfully cognizant and primordial and on in the manatee spirit, albeit at a less speedy frequency. And then talk a little bit about Antonin Artaud's sense of the theater being a place or state where one comprehends the human anatomy and that with the human anatomy one can heal and direct life. Invoking the gnosis of the natural environment and its denizens is recommended in the mandal of the Kali Chakra. I summon life forms that seem particularly threatened. The poem's litanies of the manatee lemur and wolf dream are meant as lyrical interludes, modal structures. The day a few years ago in Miami when I spent several hours in the presence of a wounded manatee in a local sea park was key to this project. I vowed to include manatee. I believe it was a she who had weathered human harm and neglect. She seemed an ancient soul and contemplative in her demeanor, huge, Buddha-like. And I fancy that I received transmission from her example, which as was as a witness to cruel captivity. The Buddhist view is that all life forms are interrelated through their evolutionary history and that animal and human minds are both participants in reality. We share the planet with many non-human temporalities. Minds exist at the quantum level below the level of atoms and subatomic particles. As is said, minds never come from nothing or go to nothing. I visualized the manatee's realm and the shallow pool as a shrine. I perceived her less as a victim and more as a poetic deity, and I felt she had the greater sympathy for me. The manatee ostensibly has no use in the current world. It's odd how creatures pacifistic, transcendent, even go extinct as human realms of cruelty, plunder, drive on. There's a recent, another recent oil spill, which is affecting all the marine life. I don't know, that was underplayed in the last couple of days. Um, and humanity was taken off the endangered list, et cetera, et cetera. So what shall I jump into here? Manatee. I'll jump to another, the sort of end. Without care, without seed pearl, seed pearl, without stitching clothes, the eye of the falcon, without seemly rectitude, without the plenitude of, oh, thou muddled media pundit, without questionable doubt or metabolism, without a geographic category of speech that will travail, without a hint or glint of secular mastery, without ritual framing of that which should be plural, could be axiomatic and of many pistols made, 
Om Mani Manati Padme Hum. The manatee has more gray matter in the brain. The manatee is thinking archivally deeper than man. Oh, manatee, oh, man, come aid the manatee, oh, man, oh, manatee, om mani, manatee, padme hum, om humanity, padme hum. She's giving you a dark look in this creation myth. She's the first to experience death. Stepping stones set in white sand, stepping stones set in white sand, remind her of the Milky Way. Laughter carried on the autumn air, laughter carried on the autumn air. She's the spectral shift, she's the spectral shift moving away from the known universe. Gamma rays, gamma rays, burst, gamma rays, standing performer, forming in a galaxy seven billion light years away. Om Mane Padme Manati Hum. So we'll taste of that. And I wanted to read, um, this is a piece from, I can't remember which book, anyway. It's um, End Time, Mind of End Time. In the mind of End Time, it looks like this, Shell, Volute, Tabriz, Aleppo, Kabul eddies and tides. When you wake, observe the unmitigated trials and tribulations of these tossed things, random it seems, but in the end, time is waiting, less personhood, more ransom. I looked over Jordan, what did I see? Drones over Jordan, coming after me, singing the crimes of man. I've got those Anthropocene, Anthropocene blues. Radical sleep in the end time. There is no end. Multiplying the stars was never easy in end time. Doing it by themselves. Would you kill another literary form? The dead will be saying, too many dead, too many dead, carrying the corpses around. In the mind of the end time, no substitutes. But if you care to try your hand, you may gamble all you have to offer. A mole might do for you, a burrowing thing might do, biding time might do for you, a night perhaps, 12 hours you have for rhetoric, then a few before you were released at dawn. Recant, reflect, review, reach out, more, stronger, better, leadership more, stronger, need more, stronger, better, need more, experienced, an experienced cop, they say, he's a baby. In the end time, there are theories of dysfunction. We have met the enemy, and he's the psychotic flow of our own blowback. And the day would be proud of itself going on as if it hadn't already collapsed, had not been destroyed, riven, all the people mad and metabolically downcast. It's around the eyes, they said. It's around the hearts. The city was reeling. People were coming out to the street in the way they wanted to see where the big guy lived and boasted so as to mock the event. It wasn't over. It wasn't going to rest. The guy was not real as the day, as the year, the century. The epic shared was not real. The tribulation he ensued was not real. But it was that affect that mattered. What would suffer? It was the warmest year on record as if that wasn't enough to make some idiot pause and pausing resist and if resisting insist on being heard and calibrated so that measures were taken round the clock. Ice caps, photographed, melting and all the rest. A pole away from accountability. How ugly would it go? Had to resist and it had already happened. And if you stopped to think someone had gotten up and walked this far and then paused to take stock for the last time, it was the last time the human had a chance, the last time to be observant and cry and stomp and take stock and be like something like the something that had melted. And if healing could ever be, it would be theater, a spectacle, come pay. 
like the kabuki you just saw imitating the resolution between a sword and a fox, a country and its honor, the last straw of honor broken on its back, and blue was invoked in the silk scarf that draped the emperor's chair where he sat timeless and waiting for the play to begin. We were it played upon. But could that be true and yet be denouement with hope still streaming in beneath the surface and then dark applause from all the sentries come raining down? And this was a poem for John Ashbery when he died. Poet John Ashbery passed away in se September. It's called Shadow Behind Eclipse. It was right around the eclipse for John. When he died, a temperature went down. Trees in the sky above flat irons. Tremor there, oh, didn't then did see. We were driving in the canyon moons ago when he had said then, closing in. Fool for this love. He was our drumming ritual if you were a berserker and willed by constellations. He was our prize for being born. This world through school time, through bliss, through saltiness in the question, can gentlemen do without? Never retreat from scrutiny or miss the enemy. Burnt leaf smell like resin. He was our fear of a sentence half dreamed if we couldn't seize the whole, he was our vessel, cave and boot, train ride to the province, meandering by river, panic to be left out of this landscape, a picnic, whole tome memorized, many colors. He was our vanguard of non-self, scent and doubt, of deep carriage into the unknown. What do you know of it if you know him not? When he did laugh, he did and muse. That was a blue eye special. He was putting things next to one another, you too somehow included. They, you, it, things didn't have to bond, but in poetry happen. And now listen to his voice with eyes gone wild for flowers. Scratchy reel to reel, 1966. Sacred fury of a primordial world, half mannish garb on the sentence, a profile in the hallway across all crystal neuropathways. Mirror, mirror, up to nature, and we had a glimpse. He was our respite, midnight excursions off limits, sometimes a candle at the brain wondering, fallen star, what rhymed with it? Blood, heart, held supine. He was our cosmography in a better world you could count on. Relief, release. So I think I'll end there. And if there's one question. Thank you for your indulgence. So one question or comment, and I'm also going to be here tomorrow. Please, you're all welcome. We're going to talk. We'll maybe discuss, look at, do some experiment. Yes? Um, what do you think poetry can contribute to the understanding of spirituality and the development of human beings in that area? Well, I think it can, and I've tried to, you know, for me it's always been a, a wake, awaken, awakens me, poetry awakens me to, to sense perception, to be in the world, to be uh, also tuned to the subtleties of language and being kind of uh, a 
were awakened by the particular parts of the inner, where the bones and bones of speech, just the combinations of things, the mellow polar, the music, the banner polar, the images, the, the logo polar, the new message, and so all these things kind of dance in a way that reflects our reality. You know, one of our models at, at Europa was, and, uh, you know, the, our job is to help the poetry and the art and help wake the world up to itself. So, you know, it's not like every poem, every, but it is there. And through time, they say poetry is the oldest religion. <laughs> so I just, I, it's my, I, I stand here as a witness of testimony to the work, you know, somehow working there, saving my life. So I think it can, um, work on you in subtle ways. It's not the kind of instant fix. You know, that's helpful. I can give you a reading list. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So please come with questions tomorrow. We're just Thank you all again for coming. Thank you, Anne. I think poetry is the oldest religion is the perfect line on which to end. <laughs>